Well, we come to Romans chapter 11, and we are going to start reading in verse 23 this morning. 11, verse 23, and we're going to go through verse 27. Kind of picking up in the middle of an extended illustration about a cultivated olive tree and being um, grafted in, Gentiles being grafted into a cultivated olive tree. And it's speaking of the difference between Jews and Gentiles and how God's plans and purposes have always included the Jews and preserving a remnant. But in these days, certainly the Lord has seen fit to predominantly work in the lives of Gentiles. And so we're picking up on this illustration here in verse 23, Romans 11, verse 23. Read along with me. And even they, that is Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you, that is Gentiles, were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Unless you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, and the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, that is Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, Israel is all over the headlines and for good reason. They are fighting a war of survival, a war that if joined in by all of her neighbors could have disastrous consequences for her statehood. And do realize all of her neighbors want to join the war to destroy Israel. They certainly have in the past. In the aftermath of World War II and the horrors of the Holocaust, the whole of what is now Israel and Palestine was under the British mandate, basically a part of the British Empire. And they decided to allow Jews to return to their land and help them set up a new nation. To say that this was controversial was an overstatement, or is an overstatement. It enraged the Arab League, a group of nations surrounding Israel, and all the nations surrounding Israel attacked the newly minted nation, even before the British had completely withdrawn from the land. The names of that attack and of that war tell you exactly how it went. Israel calls it the War of Independence, and the Arabs call it the Disaster. In the coming years, more and more Christians started talking about the founding of Israel as stage setting for the end times, as essentially God working to set everything in motion so that Jesus could come back at any moment. And not a few pastors would point to 1948 in the establishment of Israel and say, God is fulfilling prophecy right before our eyes. He's getting ready for the end. He, he's saving his people. Therefore, many view 1948 as prophecy fulfilled in our day. One commentator says this, This momentous occasion had been recorded by the pen of the prophet Isaiah. A nation shall be born in a day, Isaiah 66, verse 8. This was the greatest prophetic moment in the 20 centuries since the close of the New Testament. 
It is living evidence for all men to see that the God of Israel is alive and well. Others have said, now that Israel is back in the land, Jesus really could come back at any moment, implying that he couldn't before. But the question is, is all of this true? Are these positions accurate? Is it true that the greatest prophetic event in the last 2,000 years took place in 1948? What exactly does God prophesy about Israel's future, and does that square with what happened in 1948? To answer that question, let's go to Isaiah chapter 59. Go and turn there, Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59 is quoted in our text this morning, and in chapter 59, Isaiah gives us some sad descriptions of the nation of Israel lost in her sin. He, he speaks both of the current and future unbelief of Israel. He indicts them, prophesying of their hopelessness and finally pointing to their future salvation. Really, the chapter begins with a description of Israel's sin before their faithful God and, and then reminds them who's really at fault for the state that they find themselves. Look at verse 1, Isaiah 59, verse 1. Why has Israel had so many sad plights in her history? Behold, Yahweh's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. In other words, God himself says, don't blame me. My hand, my power, has never been too short or has never been lacking to do whatever I wanted to do. My ear and fatherly attention and care for my people has always been there. These are not missing in action for Israel. It is not God's fault that Israel is despondent. Look at verse 2. He says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. See, it's their fault there's separation. And that word separation is a fascinating word. It's an uncrossable chasm. Uh, think of it like, like space, okay? We have tried and thought about sending people to Mars for a long time. Finally, we've been able to get some rovers there and they send us some pictures, but we're still a long way off from getting an actual human being to Mars, let alone to go like to Saturn or Jupiter or Pluto or something, right? And so we understand that space, and this is just our little galaxy system, our solar system, space is massive. It's an unseparable, huge chasm. And so this is the unseparable chasm that is in between God and Israel. Why? Because Israel has rejected her God and continues to live in sin. And think of it like this. Some of you might feel distant from God, particularly if you've never been close to God in your life, and you think, what in the world is this closeness to God all about? 
Maybe you've never sought to find any joy in knowing God. God says very clearly to you too, don't blame me. Examine your life. For sin always separates us from a holy God. And that separation from sin has remained Israel's problem. Look at verse 3. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Notice Isaiah goes from specific to broad, right? Your hands are defiled with blood. It's a very specific kind of murderous picture here. To then something very broad. Your fingers are filled with iniquity. Any sort of sin that you're doing, your hands are things that you do with. So they're committing sins. Then he goes into your lips. He says your lips have specifically spoken lies. And then he goes into a broader category. Your tongue mutters all types of wickedness. Not just lies, but many types of wickedness. He does something very, very similar going from the, this time the, the, the general to the specific in verse 7. He says their feet run to evil. You see that there? They're running on the path towards evil and they are swift to shed innocent blood. And then he talks about their thoughts. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. And so that's really the key to help us understand God's problem with Israel and really his problem with humanity. It isn't that everyone's a murderer and a habitual liar. It's that everyone's hands do sinful deeds and every mind thinks sinful thoughts, and every mouth speaks wicked words. It's as if before God, everyone is a liar. Everyone is a murderer. Because God looks at the heart. Now, if you've been in church for some time, you probably are asking the question, or thinking, you know, I've heard that same logic somewhere, right? Jesus on the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, of course murder is bad, but so too is any form of anger. The issue is the desire of your heart. Jesus says, of course lying is bad, but so too is all forms of deceit. So too is not keeping your word, lacking self-control to follow through on what you say you're going to do. The issue is the desires of your heart. You see, the Jews, by and large, have rejected Christ as their Messiah. They have rejected the concept of the sinfulness of their own sin. And so Isaiah says very clearly to them an indictment that is good for all of humanity. Your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wickedness. Your thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. And only a small remnant follow Jesus even today. And the vast majority of Israel remains blind to these truths. Look at verse 10. Isaiah 59, verse 10. So we grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigor. We are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. You see what's going on here. Israel, at some point in the future, God says, will realize that they're blind. They'll understand that they're, they're, they're growling around, that the salvation hasn't come to them. It's, it's far from us. They'll realize that they are lost without God. And this hadn't happened at the time of Isaiah's prophecy 
Israel had not realized that they'd been blind to their sin. And so he speaks of a time when they do realize they'd been dead men all along and humbly confess their sins and look for salvation from God. There will come a time when massive numbers of Jews will realize that their only hope comes from Jesus. Look at verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion. Zion is just Jerusalem. To those in Jacob. Remember, Jacob's name is also Israel. To those in all of Israel who turn from transgression, declares Yahweh. So redemption comes for those who fear the Lord, who see their sin, who recognize that they're blind, and finally turn towards God and his provision for a redeemer. And the only redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel's hope is not ultimately in weapons or alliances, but in Christ alone. There is no one who is good enough at being good. Salvation comes through a humble and contrite turning to the one and only Redeemer, Jesus Christ, serving and delighting in him alone as Lord of your life. Now, I just love how Isaiah concludes, telling us how one day Israel will finally stay grounded in her faith and in her allegiance to God and his provision of a redeemer. Verse 21, right? He says, and as for me, this is my covenant with them. Speaking of this is a a new covenant, a, a new opportunity for them to understand his promise through the redeemer, through the Lord Jesus Christ, that is through the New Testament There will come a day when God will open the blind eyes of so many Jews to realize that their scriptures are not just the Old Testament, but are the new as well. And now the rest of the verse, God turns and speaks to the Messiah, to Jesus, to the Redeemer. He speaks to him as you. He says, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says Yahweh from this time forth and forevermore. He says, disciples of Jesus Christ, the offspring of the Messiah, all Christians, there will come a time in which God's spirit will rest upon upon them in which God's spirit will permanently seal and dwell his people again. There's a time and the same hope that that we enjoy now as Christians will belong to many Jews as they turn to Jesus. And in that day, there's no end to their hope because it rests in Christ. It rests in his New New Testament words. Now, the most influential man in establishing the current state of Israel is a man by the name of David Ben-Gurion. I think that's pretty um, understood. Most people would agree with that. And he was definitely not an Isaiah-like figure calling Israel to repent. No, Ben-Gurion, as a young man, was a committed atheist. He bragged about eating pork and working on Yom Kippur. And he has helped draft the Israeli Declaration of Independence. And and Ben-Gurion lobbied against any direct reference to God in the Israeli Constitution. The only line that ended up being allowed to show up was right before the signatures. And this is the line that was referenced, an oblique reference to God. It says, placing our trust in the rock of Israel, we affix our signatures. And it's closest we have to any reference to God 
Now today, many more Jews living in Israel are at least nominally religious, but, but very few, very few openly affirm Jesus as their Messiah. Few have turned from their transgressions and recognized their spiritual blindness and trusted in Christ alone for their hope. They are not Christian, there are not Christian churches and crosses dominating the landscape of Israel today. And so as much as God undoubtedly has worked to preserve Israel as a distinct people, even graciously giving them back the land in 1948, is not the glorious future that the Bible says still yet to come for Israel? That comes with a national humbling, a broken and contrite heart, a people confessing and crying out to Yahweh and finally trusting in Israel's only hope. Jesus. Zechariah 12.10 puts it, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And that hasn't happened yet. But it's exactly what Paul tells us will come one day. Let's go back to Romans chapter 11. Kind of sets, Isaiah 59 sets the stage for our text. We're picking up our passage that describes how God has worked in, in gathering the church to belong to Christ. And Paul's talking about the Israel and Gentile distinction here and his plans and program. And God has certainly not chosen the best, the brightest, and the most beautiful in the world. God has taken some from every tongue and tribe and taken broken sinners, blind creatures, born in sin, and brought us into his family. And Paul's chosen illustration for God's work in the church is grafting in branches into an olive tree. And it's a rich illustration. You see that the normal way that grafting works was that you take a struggling wild olive tree with a decent root system, and then you take a branch from a good fruitful olive tree and graft it into the struggling olive tree to produce some good fruit fruit and, and pray that the tree thrives. And never would you take a scraggly, fruitless olive tree and graft it into a good, cultivated olive tree. That's just craziness. But that's exactly what God says he does. Scraggly, wild olive branches are the Gentiles, and we are being grafted in by the droves into Israel's root. We have inherited Israel's root, and of course that means the, the scriptures, the Old Testament, the New Testament, that reveal who God is and how we can be right with him. And we are now part of God's eternal family, his, his cultivated olive tree, as he puts it. And so as we considered this illustration last week, Paul reminded us that in this act of bringing in Gentiles, we see both God's kindness and his severity. Look down at verse 22, Romans 11, verse 22. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, that is the Jews. He broke them off. But God's kindness to you, Gentiles, provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. So even as there is a warning for our offspring or our descendants, that there's no guarantee that they will follow Christ, could be broken off, as it were. But Israel, Paul is about to say, Israel's different. 
there will come a day when Israel will look to Jesus. And as we are reminded of Israel's glorious future, I want you to note three possible responses to God's plans for Israel. That's kind of our outline that we're going to be thinking about today. Three possible responses to God's plans for Israel. Two are good, God-glorifying responses, and one is a pull and a draw towards pride that many of us feel. As Paul tells us more of Israel's future salvation, he reveals the mystery of the end of the church age. And we'll see three different responses to the promise of Israel's grafting back into God's eternal family. Well, our first possible response, number one, surprised by grace. Surprised by grace. Verses 23 and 24. Now, this last week, I read a story of a Palestinian dentist who was called at 6.30 p.m. from an unknown number. The man answered, and the voice urgently said in perfect Arabic words that he will never forget. I'm calling from Israeli intelligence. We have the order to bomb. You have two hours. He told them that the three buildings down the street from him were to be bombed because they contained Hamas infrastructure. The request was very simple. Please evacuate all the civilians before we drop the bombs. Thinking it might be a joke or a prank call, the dentist asked for a warning shot to be fired. Within 30 seconds, a drone or a plane he couldn't see let out a large bang. And to be sure it wasn't a fluke, he asked again, send one more warning shot, and 30 seconds later, again, bang. Staying on the phone, he immediately ran down the street and started soliciting help from all of the residents. And the next two hours were admittedly a, a blur, and by the end of the allotted time, his voice was hoarse from the near constant yelling to get all of the civilians out of those buildings. And then after pleading for Israel not to strike one last time, the man uh, on the phone asked if all the civilians were out, and he said he thought that they were. Hundreds of yards away, the buildings explode, lighting up the sky in a stark contrast from the dim light of dusk. In war, grace can't always extend to human shields. But when it is, we're surprised by the level of knowledge and even care for civilian life given by advancing armies. Such grace has been absent from much of human history. And so we can be surprised by grace. What about the saving grace that God shows you? Are you surprised by God's grace in your life? We are literally said to be enemies of God. Go, go back to Romans 5, verse 10. We're no human shields for the devil. We are literally the combatants against God without Christ. Romans 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And if we belong to God, not only are we reconciled, but instead of justly receiving God's wrath because we're his enemies, God now tells us we are at 
peace with God. Romans 5.1 says that, therefore, since we have been justified, declared right before God, by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.21 says, and you who once were alienated and hostile of mind, doing evil deeds, God has now reconciled. And so frequently, God's saving grace, his willingness to reconcile with sinful men ought to be surprising because we are embattled enemies by our very nature. And yet God still adopts us into his eternal family by grace alone. Well, brothers and sisters, salvation is always surprising. And particularly so when you see God's plan unfold in history. Go back to Romans 11. You see, God chose a people, Israel, who who would be a hard-hearted people. Sure, there were some good generations, some faithful kings. There were some clarion prophetic calls and acts of repentance. But those things were mixed with rampant idolatry and the worst kinds of sin in Israel. And he got still decided to see fit to send his son to rebellious people. But his own did not receive him. And blinded by their own sin, they didn't believe Jesus was their Messiah. And so what did they do? They crucified him. And in a strange act of God's providence, it was that very rebellious act of putting to death God the Son that God used to make Jesus the perfect substitute sacrifice for the sins of the world. Do you understand that? Here, the Jews think they're doing something right to preserve their society, to preserve their culture by putting to death this potentially dangerous rebel in Jesus. And that very act opens up salvation for their society and for the rest of the world. Because God, as Jesus was hanging on the cross, it says in Isaiah 53, crushed his son for our iniquities. He poured out his wrath on Jesus in place of all of us so that we could be declared right before God. And that's really at the heart of the gospel. It's to remember that God crushed Jesus so that we can be reconciled to God. And there's that substitute death that is ours in Christ. That's why Christians always have crosses in our buildings because we recognize the goodness and the grace that's offered to us through the cross. But we have empty crosses, don't we? Because we remember that Jesus rose from the dead and that he did not stay dead. He doesn't need to be re-crucified. We understand that Jesus is alive today and he sits interceding for us. And so that anyone who would turn and trust in Christ alone for salvation, Jew, Gentile, anybody, might come to saving faith and have eternal life through Jesus Christ. Beloved, we should be surprised by God's grace, by his offer of salvation that went out in the early days of the church to literally the very people who crucified God the Son, Jesus Christ. And we see in the book of Acts, many Jews becoming Christians. In fact, in Acts 17, there's a a description of a party of Pharisees within the church. Former Pharisees, former Jewish Pharisees that had embattled and argued against Jesus had now come to saving faith in Jesus. And yet most of the Jews ended up rejecting God's grace. And so Isaiah 65 verse 2 is fulfilled as quoted in Romans 10, verse 21. Romans 10, 21, read that with me. 
All day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And as most Jews reject Jesus as Messiah, and as the Jewish leaders arrest and kill Christians, surprise, surprise, that's not the end of God working. No, you see, the rejection of the Jews and the rejection of the Jewish Messiah by the Jews only served as an impetus to push the gospel out to the surrounding nations. And so the gospel spreads to the Gentiles because of the Jewish disobedience. And first it goes to what is now known as the Arab nations. Fulfilling prophecy yet again, right? Romans 10, 19, and 20. He says to the Jews, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me, speaking of the Gentiles. You see, we might be excused for thinking that God would be done with Israel after their blatant and obvious rejection of Messiah. And now that God has adopted children from all the nations in the world and into his family, you can see why some people have thought that there's no future for Israel. But again, we are surprised by grace, aren't we? I mean, just read Paul's argument. Romans 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? What does he say? By no means. Verse 11. Chapter 11, verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble? That is, did Israel stumble in order that they might fall and never get up, so to speak? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. Now, what does Paul mean that he wants to make Israel jealous by the inclusion of Gentiles? Well, he goes on to magnify his ministry to the Gentiles, and then he says this in chapter 11, verse 13. He says, I magnify my ministry in order, verse 14, somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So yes, God's plan is to bring in Gentiles from all the nations, and one day, by Israel, seeing God's blessing on many Gentiles, vast numbers of Jews will be jealous of Gentiles coming to their God and they're worshiping their Messiah and they will realize what they had missed all along, that they ought to recognize the blindness of their own sin and turn to Jesus as their only and so we see a surprising reality. Many, if not most Jews, one day will be leave in Jesus. Look at verse 23. Romans eleven twenty-three. And even they, Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, meaning they start to believe in Jesus as their Messiah, they will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. So you, you got to notice that the future grafting in of Israel happens only when God's people what? Believe in God's Savior, right? Not when a group says, let's go back to the land without God. And God certainly has the power to graft them back in. So Paul continues, verse 24, right? Verse 24, for if you were cut off, that is Gentiles, from what is by nature a wild olive tree and, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, well, then how much easier will it be for these, the natural branches, to be grafted back into their own 
olive tree. Clearly, in many ways, it is easier to graft branches from the same olive tree back into the root of said olive tree. So in many ways, it is easier for Israel to return to her God, to return to her scriptures, and to see that the New Testament isn't some Christian scripture. The New Testament is Jewish scriptures, the culmination of the Old Testament. But don't miss the element of surprise here. It's surprising that God opened salvation to the Gentiles in the first place. And similarly, it is surprising for God to revisit his people showing mercy and grace to a hard-hearted, rebellious people and grafting them back into a tree from which they had once been removed. So everything about these last few chapters are designed to invert human expectations. Like remember, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Who was the firstborn there, right? Esau was. So Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What do you mean, God? How does that happen? And then before they were even born, God wanted to show who was in control of putting his blessings where he wanted to put them. So he tells us. In fact, God has designed salvation history in the same way. That the extension of his saving grace would surprise all of those who are its recipients. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. You would come to expect that you deserve God's work. And so as we learn about God's salvation history, as we look at our own salvation history, we ought to be more surprised by grace. If we aren't, perhaps we don't know grace simply because we have never become convinced that we need grace. And in those instances, we see another possible response to God's plans Blinded by pride. Blinded by pride. When we think that we're the only apple of God's eye, we sometimes make some incredibly foolish claims. For example, there's a view out there uh, that some think that God has inspired the King James Version of the Bible. that The other translations, um, you know, they're not inspired, but God has specifically inspired the King James Version of the Bible. And if you want to go do missionary work and translate the Bible into another language, you have to use the King James Version because that's the inspired scripture. So it means then the English-speaking Christians are the only ones to have the fully, truly inspired word of God in their language. You think how self-centered that is and crazy thinking that is? See, when you're blinded by pride, you have a hard time seeing your own flaws. And you start to think, God must look, God must act, and God must think just like me. And instead of letting God tell us who he is and how he plans to work in his word, we tend to make God in our own image. Speaking English in King James Version, right? And as the grafted-in branches, the, the ones whose cultural preferences, even 20th or 21st century American cultural preferences, are very far from ancient Israel's culture, we can become so blinded and think that our cultural pride and the way we do things is the best and only way to do it until we get surprised by God's grace and realize that there's plenty in us for God still to refine including in our culture. So Paul has already warned us, verses 18 through 20. Romans eleven eighteen. 18. 
Do not be arrogant towards the branches, you Gentiles. If you remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Don't I have room for pride? Don't I have room? Uh, isn't it, aren't I grafted in because there's something inherently good in me is the implication here. Verse 20, well, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. In other words, recognize the tenuous nature of our children and our grandchildren's relationship with God. It only is secure if they stand fast in the faith. If they don't hold fast the sound doctrines inherited, then there's a right fear of God. So don't be proud thinking your culture will keep them on the straight and narrow. Consistently come to Christ and recognize your need for Christ. So Paul again instructs us Gentiles to be humble. Verse 25, right? Look at verse 25, Romans 11, verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. So to be wise in your own sight is to be a legend in your own mind, right? That, that's what the phrase that you use when like, you, you, do some, you win some competition, right, as a kid, and they think that they're going to win everything from then on, right? Or, you know, the, uh, I, <laughs> the, the person who uh, gets a, uh, a raise at work and thinks that, you know, they're going to be the next CEO in a couple months, right? They're a legend in their own mind. That's the idea of what's going on here. Don't be wise in your own sight. And so God wants to remind us of what was once a mystery to humble us, to keep us from being legends in our own mind. So remember, a mystery in the Bible is not something that's completely unknown or unknowable, but a mystery is something that is previously hidden that's now revealed. So let's see with that in mind what this mystery is. So he says, lest you be wise in your own eyes, verse 25, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. See, the mystery that is now fully revealed is that the church age will see massive numbers of Gentiles follow the Jewish Messiah, follow Jesus Christ. But, but one day, there's going to be a fullness of the Gentiles that will come in, and massive numbers of Jews will be saved. Verse 26 talks about that, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Or you could say, and so, and thus, when the fullness of Gentiles has come in, all Israel will be saved. So what is the mystery of the fullness of the Gentiles? Well, many understand it to be the inclusion of Gentiles into God's family tree. And most Jews definitely missed that fact. But Isaiah actually speaks of the Messiah as savior of the Jews and one who brings light to the nations. I mean, just listen as I read Isaiah 49 verse 6. Speaking of the Redeemer of Israel, right? The, the coming Messiah. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob or, or Israel and to bring back the preserved of, of Israel or Jacob. I will make you as a light for the nations, he tells Messiah, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. See, see, there's great clarity at points in the Old Testament that say that salvation is going to include both Jew and Gentile. But the mystery, the mystery in verse 25 tells us that it's not just 
completely even Jew and Gentile here, then in order to bring about an age of the Gentile, many Jews will be hardened until there's a fullness of the time of the Gentiles. So what, again, is the fullness of the Gentiles? And in the context, the think of things like the Gentile branches, right? So if you think of a tree that's going to get so full at some point that there's no more places to input any more branches. And so to, to kind of push that illustration, the fullness of the Gentiles is when God's tree is completely full with his exact number of Gentile believers grafted in who God wants to graft in and who God sees fit to graft in. Some from every tongue and nation and tribe. When God's plan and purpose for the churches are completed, there will be a set number of Gentiles who come to saving faith in Jesus. And in the fullness of time, the fullness of Gentile branches will have been added. You want to know why we understand it to be some from every tongue and tribe? You can look at Revelation 7. It talks about that. And it's at the fullness of the age of the Gentile church that Israel will turn and find her hope in Christ alone. Does that mean we can't evangelize Jews now? No, absolutely not. There is going to be a remnant of Jews who will come to saving knowledge of Jesus, and we should share the gospel with all those whom God has put into our life, Jew and Gentile alike. But there is a time coming in the fullness of the age of the Gentiles in which massive numbers of Jews will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul exhorts the Gentiles, don't be blinded by your pride. Don't be arrogant to think that all your children, your grandchildren, and great-grandchildren will, will walk faithfully with God. No, there will come a time when the fullness of the Gentiles' age will come to an end. Be humble enough to continually be surprised by God's grace in your life. And remember that his grace will again extend to the Jews. So let me be clear. Anti-Semitism has no place in the life of Christians. There is no room for hatred of any people group, especially not for the Jews. For God will never fully forsake his people. And lastly, as you anticipate God's faithful love for Israel, let's be, number three, grateful for faithfulness. Grateful for faithfulness. Now, part of what I love about my own father is his faithfulness. As they've been living with us for the last six months, almost every morning you can find him in the same place. Well, the chair may change, but the same activity, doing a little coffee and reading his word, taking notes in his Bible. His priorities for personal worship are right and encouraging to our whole family. And one of the saddest plagues of our day is that of an absentee father. I find it difficult for kids who grow up with an absentee father or even an untrustworthy father to trust the faithfulness of God, their father. If you had a dad who promised the world and barely brought home a few old pennies to rub together, then it can be hard to trust in your heavenly father as well. I think that's why so many hear the promises of God and then look at the fog of life and have a hard time grasping what's going on and, and think sarcastically, sure, like these promises are ever going to happen in my life. But part of the very essence of God is that God is trustworthy. He is faithful to fulfill all of his promises. 
And frankly, when you read the Old Testament, you see again and again specific promises made to Israel as a nation, promises that have yet to happen. And so Paul encourages us to be grateful for God's faithfulness, even to do the things yet to take place. Look at verse 25 again. He says, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in so that in this way all Israel will be saved. That phrase, in this way, it has to refer to the the fullness of the Gentiles in verse 25 because that's really what comes right before it. It could simply be translated uh, in verse 25 as, and so, because the fullness of Gentiles has come in, so all Israel will be saved. Because we understand that these things must therefore be connected. And so what does it mean then that all Israel will be saved? Does it mean that all Israel who has ever lived will be saved? I don't think that works because we understand that you have to believe in Jesus to be saved. All Israel, maybe who is alive at the end times, will be saved. That's a possibility. Certainly is a good one. But I think the best option is it means all whom God has chosen will be saved. And and so many that it seems as this the, the vast majority of the nation will be saved. But all Israel doesn't mean every last one. So, for example, Joshua 7, verse 25 says, all Israel picked up stones to stone Achan. Remember that? Does it mean that every last Israelite picked up a stone to stone Achan? No, no. And then you got Daniel 9, verse 11. Daniel's confessing his sins, uh, the sins of the nation to the Lord. He says, and all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And again, we know that's not true because God has said, I have always preserved a remnant among my people. So all doesn't literally mean every single last one in many places that we find. So now in Romans eleven twenty six, when it says all Israel will be saved, we should expect to find some clues in the context to help us know what all Israel is referring to. And so where does Paul draw the contrast in this passage? Contrast is between Jews and Gentiles, right? And so what does the salvation, uh, when does the salvation of Jews begin? At the fullness or the completion of the salvation of the Gentiles. Does this mean that every last Gentile will be saved? No, it simply means that when God has seen fit to bring in all those whom the Gentiles uh, will come to know him and who he chooses to graft in, then he will choose to save all Israel. And so there's got to be a correlation there. And so it isn't every last Jew that will be saved, but certainly at the very least, 12,000 from every tribe, as Revelation 7 prophesies, will be saved. And certainly enough to make Israel, obviously, a Christ-following nation will be saved. Because it is known to everybody that Israel will worship their Messiah. And so all Israel refers to a future mass conversion of Jews that will take place in the end of days. And Paul isn't just making this up. This isn't some new revelation even. This is really the consistent promise of the Old Testament. And so he quotes from the chapter that we looked at earlier in Isaiah 59. So he says, and in this way all Israel will be saved, verse 26, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. 
Now, if you have footnotes, you probably see more than Isaiah 59 referenced in this verse or in these couple of verses. And that's because Paul takes the theme and the idea of Isaiah 59, this idea that Israel will come back to their Messiah and they will repent and recognize their sin and turn to Jesus one day. Paul also borrows language from many other places. Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Isaiah 27, and he imports language from all these different passages to make his point. God has a future for Israel. And what is our response? We should be grateful for a faithful God. This is often how Paul quotes Old Testament, borrowing language from multiple passages to highlight his main idea, the faithfulness of God to keep his word. So Israel's salvation is associated with the return of the deliverer, the return of Messiah, the return of Christ. And when Jesus comes back, What is the blessing that is highlighted in verse 27? And this will be my new covenant with them when I take away their sins. When I remove their sins as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103. So how do you respond when you learn of God's plan for Israel? Is it a dry, dusty doctrine locked up in some future obscurities that won't likely affect your life, and so you think, you know what? Who even cares? For others of you, a focus on Israel might be a fascination, a sole focus to the exclusion of all other doctrines, especially if you're looking for prophecies fulfilled in the headlines. Maybe that's you. Maybe you long to look and read the news and read it with your Bible open, and you're like, I'm going to find out how all this is setting the stage. I'm going to look for all these events. They're going to make it so that Jesus is going to come back really soon, and and you're going to look for different things, and you you think, I could connect this verse to this event. But I don't think either of those responses goes well with what the Bible encourages us. See, the truth of Israel's future redemption should push us back towards the Redeemer, with a humbled heart, surprised by God's grace and grateful for God's faithfulness. Now, Princess Leia's first and perhaps most memorable line from Star Wars is very simple. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope, right? R2-D2 has it and plays it and repeats it on, does that sort of thing. But the, the, the theme comes forward and we all understand and we probably know that line by memory. It's Leia's final message for R2-D2. And supposedly, the last hope is for the rebels to be able to overthrow the evil empire is to get the Jedi back in the fight, right? That's what Obi-Wan Kenobi represents. And the end goal of of Obi-Wan Kenobi's deliverance is apparently kind of destruction of the Death Star and, and kind of the destruction of the imminent dangers that they face. But if you've watched the new movies, you start to question how important that was because how long was that piece, right? Like less than a generation. And the same exact thing happens in the next generation. They go through the the, the same crisis, this existential space crisis as as a new empire comes and and, and new uh, rebels fight and and the Skywalker family drama repeats itself. I'm sure we're going to get episodes, whatever, 13, 14, 15. I don't know how many we're at now. But it's the same story again and again and again. 
her only hope really led to something that was a very temporary solution, talking maybe 20, 30 years. Israel's only hope, our only hope, isn't for some temporary peace treaty. It's not for a better national government in the United States with a few more laws that we agree with. Our only hope must rest in Jesus and his eternal gift of reconciliation with God. Jesus doesn't give us a few good years before the next big war. Jesus gives us eternal life. So come to him today, tomorrow, and the next, for he is our only Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this chance that we've had to study your scriptures, to realize very clearly that you have a future hope for Israel that is prophesied. We certainly recognize that you are gracious. You see fit to uh, save those of us who do not deserve it. You have taken pagan god Uh, godless uh, nations and peoples and so many of us have a heritage that comes far enough back to something that is far from worshiping you. Lord, and it's with every generation, every child born and as we see the the coming struggles with sin from the one-year-old and the two-year-old and the three-year-old, and we see the increasing temptations towards unrighteousness. Lord, we are reminded that we should always be surprised at your grace that's at work in any of our lives. Lord, so help us to be humble enough to recognize that we need your grace and that you see fit to include us into your plans now. Help us to not take these things for granted and help us to look to Israel's future and help us to be grateful that you indeed are a faithful God. That when you say you are going to do something, you will do it and you will do it far better than even we can ever imagine. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your provisions of the Messiah. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.